0: Last week we began to explore the theme of how our status changing, because you know literally that's what the doctrine of justification by faith really is. A pronouncement, a legal pronouncement by God that your status has changed. You've gone from under judgment to under grace. You've gone from condemned to forgiven. It is the greatest status change you can ever experience. And what we said was, that status changing has ramifications or implications in your life. It changes everything. And we looked at last week how it brings you new life. This morning we're carrying on and expanding this theme as we explore how not only we receive new life, but this new life brings us ultimate liberation. Because of our union with Christ, we have new life in Christ, and because of that, New life You have the freedom that you were created for, the freedom that you were built for, the freedom that you were designed for. Not political liberation, but ultimate liberation. The freedom to be humans, to love God and love one another. And Paul, in Romans chapter 6, is beginning to delineate and explain how this can be about. So as we begin to approach this text, if you have Bibles, iPads, iPhones, Edmund Fires, whatever it might be, it's Romans chapter 6 verses 6 through 11 let's pray and then we'll read and hear the word of the Lord father we come before you and we are humbled by the privilege and the joy and the reality that you have spoken to us in your word and that you have revealed yourself to us in your word and that your word is true and it's authoritative over our lives and I thank for the promise that your word does not return to you void it does not return to you empty but it will because it's attended with your promise you've attached yourself and your word to it that it will accomplish exactly what you've set out for it to accomplish that gives me great peace great comfort great hope so we hear and we approach your word asking your spirit to open and illumine our minds and our hearts for the glory of christ in jesus name amen Now, if you were able to stand, I'll ask you one more time to stand for the reading of God's Word, Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Paul writes, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the very word of God. You may be seated. We're looking how the Gospel of Jesus Christ brings us a true and an ultimate freedom. And we mentioned last week at the close of last week at how the Gospel fulfills for us a new exodus, that Christ is the true and greater Moses, the deliverer and the champion that we always needed. I'm always struck when we read the Bible Tim Keller used to teach us, he used to say there's always." Two ways to read the Bible, one obviously being wrong one being right. The wrong way is to read the Bible and say that it's about us. To look at it and say, what does it say about us and make that the primary. Not that there isn't application, but make that the primary. Says the true way to read the Bible is to say, what does it tell us, what does it teach us about Christ and then how do we live flowing out of that? thought of that as an example. I don't know how many of you follow the Spruce Creek Bible reading plan, but this morning's reading, part of it came out of 1 Samuel chapter 17, which is kind of the famous story of David and Goliath. Now, the story of David and Goliath, here's the wrong way to read it. To look at it and say, we have Goliaths in our life. We have giants in our life. And if we had the faith of David, we could conquer those Goliaths. Friends, I exhort and encourage you, in the greatest way I know how, please eliminate any of all thoughts of that. That is the Bible about you. That is not how to read that story. Instead, you know what, 1 Samuel 17, and it's a glorious story, that actually instructs us how to read the New Testament, and shows us Jesus, because in the beginning of 1 Samuel 17, it actually says, Goliath is presented before Israel as the champion of the Philistines. Now picture, that word is very important, because the Philistines were the enemies of Israel. And Goliath is their champion, and he's taunting, and he's confronting Israel to take them down. And so Israel is looking for someone who would go up, and who do they choose? They send to the front young David, a shepherd boy. And even Saul tries to put his armor on him and says, what is all, you know, I've never worn this before. And he goes with nothing but what is sling and his rocks and all. So in weakness, the youngest of the sons of Jesse, looking like he has no chance, what does he do? He takes down Goliath. What does David represent? He represents a champion, a hero, and that prefigures and foreshadows Jesus Christ. We need to learn to read the Bible is that it is about Jesus. And so we introduced how Romans 6 through 8, Paul is telling the story, or retelling, the story of the Exodus. Now remember the Exodus? The Exodus is where God heard the people of Israel crying in their bondage, crying in their misery of their slavery and oppression. What did God do? He heard their cry. He remembered his covenants with Abraham and he sent a deliverer. He sent the champion, Moses, to bring them up out of their slavery and bondage. So as one writer says, they came through the Red Sea, leaving behind the land of slavery and discovering a new freedom. Where God led them to Mount Sinai, where they received and were given the very law of God. There they spent time wandering in the wilderness, and what did they do? They grumbled against God. It's better. Life is better in Egypt. Take us back to Egypt. But what did God do? He continued to lead them by His own presence in the pillar of cloud and fire until eventually they entered the Promised Land, the Land of Inheritance that they had been given as a gift. This writer goes on to say, here in Romans, what is Paul doing? He's telling a version of the very same story, starting with this very present passage in Romans chapter 6. How Romans 6 describes how Christians come through, and remember we said this is not water baptism, this is baptism pointing to the spiritual reality in Christ. But they come through baptism, much like the Red Sea. And they leave behind the land of slavery and enter upon a new freedom, like leaving Egypt and setting off for the Promised Land. That's Romans 6. You're giving liberation, freedom. But you end up in the wilderness, Romans chapter 7, which wrestles with the question of what happened in Mount Sinai, the problems that resulted, leading to a strange new fulfillment of the law. Romans 8 describes the Christian life in terms of God leading His people through the wilderness home to their inheritance, which turns out to not simply be a strip of land, but the entire redeemed creation. So Paul here, in this section of the letter to the Romans, is saying the Gospel is a new exodus. But instead of a political liberation, it is ultimate liberation. It is freedom from sin and corruption and decay and death this is what is validated and vindicated in the resurrection of jesus christ and this is the power that we are united to if you're united to jesus christ so verses 6 through 11 basically what paul is doing is restating and elaborating on the thesis that he started in verses one through five and he's teaching us about our ultimate liberation and he does so in three ways. He does so by saying there's something you need to know, there's something you need to believe, and there's something you need to consider. Comes right out of the text, verses six through seven, there's something you need to know, that will lead to ultimate liberation. Verses eight through 10, there's something you need to believe, embrace, that will lead to ultimate liberation. And verse 11, <coughs> this is a perfect lead into what Rick will preach in next week on verses 12 through 14. There is something you need to, on a daily basis, practice and consider and calculate. Okay, look with me at verses 6-7. through seven. And no, this is very not a deep outline, it's pretty simple, because look at the first words in verse 6. We know, and I want to give you a clue, there's something we need to know. Look what Paul says. We know that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So look at this. The first words we know, Paul is encouraging the Romans to deduce certain things on the basis of the gospel. So deduce, why do you have new life? You have new life because you're united to Jesus Christ. And why does that bring you ultimate liberation? Well, first, and remember here, he's restating and elaborating the argument he just previously made. He says, first, there is something to know, something to deduce from what he just said. The first thing you have to deduce is that our old self has been crucified with Christ. New life comes from union with Christ, from being incorporated into Christ, so that what is true of Him, His crucifixion and His resurrection, is now legally true of you. Now, there's a lot of mystery in this doctrine of union with Christ, and I can't help but wonder, do we pay enough attention to the doctrine of union with Christ? Because it is only because of your union with Christ that you are actually justified. Justification, which we've been saying and teaching is God's legal pronouncement, legal declaration, comes because you're united to Christ. It comes by His grace, through faith, that what is his becomes yours. What is true of him is true of you. Now, John Calvin, in his institutes, in what I think are some of his most important words, said this about union with Christ. Listen carefully. He said, how do we receive those benefits which the Father bestowed on his only begotten Son, not for Christ's own private use, but that he might enrich poor and needy men? first we must understand that as long as christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us friends that's radical because do you see what calvin is saying he's saying as long as christ remains outside of us that means you can believe certain things You can assent to certain things. You can acknowledge certain things. But if Christ remains outside of you, His benefits cannot be given to you. Which means there are implications for things like evangelism. You know, how often do we hear, or how often do we say things like, well, he or she accepted Jesus into our heart? Is that necessarily true saving faith? want to be careful with that. You know, the reformers here were very careful that they said to have true saving faith, a faith that is by God's grace, a gift of God, and unites you to Jesus Christ, so that the benefits of Christ can become yours. They said there had to be three elements to this. They said the first is knowledge of the truth, a cognitive element. The second is they said there has to be a sense to that truth. You can't just know it. You have to believe it's true. But the third, and this is very important, because just knowledge of the truth and assent to the truth is not enough. They said the third is entrusting oneself to the truth. Where you receive and rest yourself in the hands of Christ. This unites us mystically and spiritually to Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is teaching here. Because look with me at verse 6. He begins, for we know, and then he elaborates three things that we know. He says, first of all, we know that our old self was crucified with Him. Crucified with Him means that His death becomes our death. We died, we experienced, legally, crucifixion with Christ. Now, what does it mean the old self died? What does that mean? Well, it means that who we were in Adam, what belongs to our former self, has died. The second thing he says is, we know, and then notice this, in order that, so first, our old self was crucified with Christ, in order that, and words in order that mean purpose. So, we know our old self was crucified with him, so that, for this reason, for this purpose, this was the aim, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now what does the body of sin mean? Calvin said it meant the of sin. Charles Hodge, who was the president of Princeton Theological Seminary in the 19th century, called it the system of old desires. And a little bit more contemporary, Thomas Schreiner says that believers have died with Christ so that the sinful body would no longer exercise mastery. Be done away with you have a new lord a new king a new master sin and the sinful realm the sinful order your old order of things is no longer lord of your life which leads to the third thing verse 6 he says so that again indicating purpose so that we would no longer be enslaved to send you hear the illusions the echoes of the exodus you've left the egypt of bondage and slavery to selfishness and fear and greed and gossip and the old order of unrighteousness and injustice and evil of sin, and you are now free. Just as Israel was liberated from bondage, enslavement to Egypt, we are liberated from our enslavement to the realm, to the era, to the old order of sin. See, we need to recognize that the Exodus was a picture, a paradigm, a model for us of the salvation that was ultimately bought and fulfilled by Christ. But think about this. Don't we like Israel often like to return to Egypt? Because Egypt is what? It's, it's known. It's what's familiar. It's what's comfortable. See, I don't know what your own personal Egypts are. I know for me, and once again, poor Rick has to be the vice president because I think I'm the president of the control freak love. Egypt for me is being in control. You ever notice how orderly it is? My, my little book has to be here. It can't be over here. It's got to be here. I'm not sure if I would know what it's like to preach my faith if my little book was over here. You might see panic start to come over my face. And then you might have to say, don't go back to Egypt, Jeff. And I'll say, wait a second, we'll do that later. Let's right now enjoy Egypt. <laughs> What is your personal Egypt that you're always looking to go back to? See, it says, so that you've been set free, you've been crucified with Christ, so that you would... What does verse 7 say? The person who has been freed from sin, who's died, is set free from sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Which kind of leads us to another practical question. All of these, the metaphor of death that's being used, you've died of sin, you've been set free from sin. Well, why do we keep continuing to sin? Is Paul kind of contradicting himself here? Well, the answer to that is a common feature in Pauline theology known as the already and the not yet. And it's really important that we have this straight in our mind. So, for example, in verse 4 that we looked at last week, Paul says, We are enabled now to walk in newness of life because of Christ's resurrection. The ruling principle of sin. Mastery. We no longer masters us. That is the already aspect. But since the actual physical resurrection for us is still in the future, we're not liberated in every respect from the present evil age. We still struggle with wanting to return to Egypt, with wanting to go back to Egypt. So that is the not yet. So, as commentators put it. What has been shattered is not the presence of sin, but it's mastery over believers. Paul does not say that Christians cannot, in fact, sin, but that sin cannot be a ruling principle for Christians. And Paul is saying, you need to know this. We know that we've been set free from the ruling principle of sin. That's the first thing to experience ultimate liberation, but it's not enough. Secondly, he says there's something you need to believe. Look with me at verse 8. It says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe, here's there's something to believe. What do we believe? We believe that we will also live with him. Now, it's very important that we understand what that we will also live with him means. Greek scholars and people who are a whole lot smarter than me, they call this tense of the Greek language a logical Not a genuine future. Like you read this, we will also live with him. And you think a genuine future is, it's not happening yet. It's going to happen in the future. But scholars who know a lot more about Greek than I do call it a logical future. And they say, because of the resurrection of Jesus, this is more like a guarantee. A guarantee that we will live with Christ. The text says we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Notice the emphasis shift. We know that we've died to sin, we believe we live to God. The emphasis shifts from dying with Christ to living with Christ. See, liberation does not come if you remain dead. Death is necessary, but death leads you to life. The point is liberation, and the point is life. The life Jesus now lives, he lives to God. And friends, that is the point for us as well. We need to practically believe and learn to die to our agendas, die to our preferences, die to our former ways of seeing life, to what we were brought up on, to what makes sense to us, in order to live personally and really to God. If we have died with Christ, we believe, that we will also live with him. I love how Thomas Schreiner puts it when he says, the presupposition for the whole argument is that believers are incorporated into Christ. Thus what is true of Christ as their representative is also true of them. Believers live together with Christ because now that Christ has been raised from the dead, he cannot die again. The power of the resurrection has penetrated the present evil age so that those who belong to Christ share in his triumph over death. Christ no longer dies because the dominion that death exercised over him has been broken. As the sinless one suffered the consequences of sin and death for the sake of believers, his resurrection signaled his triumph over sin and death, and those in Christ share that victory with him. Do you believe that? You already have the victory because of the resurrection with Christ. That allows you to live with Christ. And because of the already, the mystery of faith, we now look at the third point. There is something to consider. Look with me at verse 11. Paul says, and here he's transitioning from what, and you're going to hear much more of this next week, from what he calls the indicative to the imperative. The indicative being all that's true of you. That's what you're to know and believe. Now he's beginning, based on that indicative, to move into the imperative. Here's what you are to do. And the first thing you are to do is think about yourself a certain way. Consider yourself. And this is not about self-image. It's not about self-love. It's not about self-hate. It's not about self-loathing. It's about how you are to think and see. It's remembering who you are because of Christ and the gospel. And look at what he says. He says, so also you must consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, obviously, a key phrase, the key term here is consider. What does it mean to consider yourself? Commentators tell us that the word here that Paul is using is a word that is used in bookkeeping. It's an accounting term. It's used in calculating accounts and working out profit and loss figures. One writer says, now, of course, when you do a calculation, you get an answer which, in a sense, didn't exist before. But he says, in another sense, all that the calculation does is to make you aware of what, in fact, was true all along. It does not create a new reality until you add up the money in the two. You don't know how much your day's takings were worth, but adding it up doesn't make the day's takings any larger or smaller than they already are. Paul is telling us, do the sums, do the math, work out the calculation. Don't somehow screw up your spiritual courage for a leap of faith in which we imagine ourselves to be actually sinless. He says, here's the point. It is often hard to believe the result of the calculation. But faith, at this point, consists not of shutting one's eyes and trying to believe the impossible, but opening one's eyes to the reality of Jesus and His death and resurrection and to the reality of one's own status and standing as one who is incorporated into Christ. The challenge of verse 11 is to remember who you are in Christ. It is not a leap of faith. It is not based on your feelings. It is recalling and remembering your true gospel identity. That in Christ, we are people who have died. Sin in the realm of sin, unrighteousness, evil, is no longer our Lord and no longer our Master. Our Lord, our King and Master, is a gracious King, a benevolent King, a holy King, a righteous King. And we belong to His realm. We belong to Him. We are alive to God in Jesus Christ. That's why so many of us kind of experience tension in our lives. And let me tell you something, that tension is evidence of spiritual growth. It is good that you're experiencing that tension. It means you're alive to the work of God in you. Praise God! You want there to be that te- The absence of tension can be a red flag and a warning sign. See, so we need to recognize we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. And the text is saying, calculate yourself that way. Do the math. Jesus has died. You're one with him. You've died. Jesus was resurrected. You're one with him. You've been resurrected. You walk in newness of life. Consider yourself that way. It doesn't say count yourself a model citizen, a great father, a great husband, a great wife, a good pastor, a good elder. Or anything. It says count yourself dead to the lordship of sin and alive to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And learn to think about yourself. That way. And that, how counterintuitive and paradoxical is this? That is what leads to ultimate liberation. Just like union with Christ is what gives you life, new life. This knowing something, believing something, and calculating yourself something, considering yourself, this is what leads to ultimate liberation. And here's the hard part. It's not all the rules. It's not all the boundaries we want to set up. It's not all the ways we want to stay in control. This, this is why it's called the mystery of faith. It requires faith. It's much easier to set up the rules. It's much easier to say, if we have all these strong boundaries in place, and just keep the rules, things will be okay. But that's not what the Gospel says. The Gospel, is telling us to live by faith, is saying, remember who you are in Christ. Remember your identity in Christ. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. Remembering that we have a new master and a king, a gracious and benevolent king, a king who loves us and gave himself for us, and who lives to intercede for us. He lives to communicate to us by his spirit that we are really his, that we can't lose him and he can't lose us, because we're united to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the new life and the liberation that you give us in Christ. And Father, help us to learn how to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.